an Apple Zero Day, a surprise Firefox update, and prison time for password cracking. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug. He is Paul. Yes, I am. Hello, everyone. Good day to you, Paul. I have a fun fact for you, as we like to start the show with a fun fact. This is about the number three and Greek philosopher Pythagoras, who believed three to be the perfect number. Harmony, wisdom, understanding, past, present, future, birth, life, death, beginning, middle, end. And we'll talk about a not-so-perfect three later in the show. Yes, they did a lot of interesting stuff back in the Pythagorean school, although they really, really struggled with what we now call irrational numbers, or what they would have called non-commensurate numbers. They were convinced that any number had to be a fraction of some sort, even if the numerator and the denominator needed hundreds of digits each. So root two, like if you tried hard enough, eventually you'd work out this super complicated fraction, but it would be one integer divided by another integer. And apparently they did not take kindly to a proof being found that there were some numbers that actually weren't fractions. Represented as decimals, they just never ended. Like root two. And of course pi, which ironically got named after the first letter in Pythagoras. Let's talk about uh, more numbers and uh, cracked password. The question uh, with this story is, how big is your botnet? How many members of your botnet do you need to amass to accrue four years in prison? The answer to that, Doug, is that we don't actually know because the US Department of Justice didn't say. But what they did say is that this chap, we can now call him the perpetrator because he pleaded guilty and he has now been sent to prison. His name is, uh, I'll, I'll give it a bash, he's from Ukraine, and his name is Glib Oleksandr Ivanov Tolpintsev. Nailed it. And Glib as a first name got me, because it seems like maybe he was a little bit glib. And basically what he did is he figured, well, you get all these passwords in password breaches that aren't actually usable because they're hashed. So if you can crack them quietly then you don't have to get into ransomware and you don't have to get into hacking into other people's networks. You can just sit in the background and, I guess, quietly offer them for sale online. And apparently he had a, a marketplace called <laughs> The Marketplace and he would boast that he, he had about 2,000 new working passwords every week. Now, that doesn't sound a lot if you're into password cracking, but I think the issue here is that it wasn't that I've got all the password hashes for Acme Corporation's employees, so someone could buy those because one of them's bound to work for that company. It was more like they were a kind of random selection. So those 2,000 passwords, for all we know, could have been a doorway into 2,000 completely different companies. So you can imagine that ransomware crooks would love to buy that stuff. Yeah, if you want the computing power to crack passwords like that, you can either go out and try and buy GPUs and do your cracking that way, or you can do what Mr. Glib did and set up a botnet, a zombie network of other people's computers. And instead of using those zombies to spy on them, steal their data, take their screenshots and whatnot, and instead of mining cryptocurrency, you basically mine passwords. 
send them back to yourself, put them up for sale. It seems that was his little artisan boutique business angle in cybercrime. And it says here, so four years, that's a reasonably long time. And uh, it looks like he made just over $80,000, which is not nothing. You might think, well, the ransomware guys who buy those passwords, sometimes some of those guys are asking like $4 million a time. Who cares about a, a measly 80000 Yeah, but well, he's, he, yeah, that, so to your point, he's enabling all these other people to do very bad things. He's also illegally breaking into other people's computers and using them without permission and using up their electricity. And of course, it's not that they said, oh, well, you're naughty because of 82,000. It's just that part of his sentence is that's the amount that he has to pay back because that's the amount they can show he actually made. Presumably, that would be American victims that they're able to correlate and actually prove in court that's actual damage. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds like a sort of modest cybercrime, as though $80,000 is just chicken feed. <laughs> I suppose it must be nice to be so rich that 80 grand doesn't matter to you. Um, <laughs> that, that's but, the point I was trying to get across, is I am so rich that 80 grand is nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's not unlawful to crack passwords in all cases. Uh, it's a legitimate penetration testing or even... Uh, blue teaming tool with permission. But when you're cracking other people's passwords that were unlawfully acquired in the first place, and then you sell them to other people, knowing that their desire to have them is to break in and do more crime, well, it's not the password cracking per se that is what got him into trouble. It's the fact that he made a living out of it, and it was not an honest living because he didn't have permission from the organization or organizations that essentially owned the passwords. Okay, and we have some advice for the good people here, starting with uh, a no-brainer, pick proper passwords. And I, we, should, we should point out that just because you pick a proper password doesn't mean it can't eventually be cracked with a giant botnet network, but you want to make it as difficult as possible, right? Yes. Obviously, you could have a super complicated password, but it could get fished, it could get keylogged, somebody could have a surveillance camera that just happens to see you typing it in. So long passwords, they're not secure against all types of attack. The problem is that the most likely way your password is going to get cracked is offline cracking where password hashes are stolen. And the thing is that these days, password cracking tools, they don't start at AAAA, AAAB, AAAC, and so on. That's a, a true brute force attack. You try every possible combination. They generate passwords in what the password generating tool thinks is the most likely order that humans will pick them who aren't picking proper passwords. There are even password crackers that try and estimate, say for an N character password, what are the most likely typing patterns, or even trying to guess how humans will try and, and break randomness by trying to be too random. Oh, I've typed the letter Q, so I can't have it twice. So I have to type something else. Oh, I know, I'll type S because it's diagonally next to it. There are even sort of keyboard labyrinth tours algorithms that try and guess the most likely passwords, even for stuff that when you looked at it, you think that's random. And that's the problem. Don't be at the top of the list. 
and the higher up in the list you are the sooner your password will be cracked and therefore the less time you will have to change it after a warning and that's what uh, makes this second piece of advice so important use 2fa if you can indeed i think everyone knows what 2fa is by now you have your username you have your password and then you have something else that you have to show now it could be a fingerprint it could be a iris scan but most often it's going to be one of those six digit codes that gets texted to your phone that's different every time and it's only valid for a couple of minutes and it comes specifically to your phone or there's an app on your phone that generates the next number in a sequence that can't easily be predicted now 2FA doesn't stop you getting fished or hacked because a crook could trick you into looking up the actual number and telling them what it is so it's not perfect but it does mean that for most conventional old school login systems that still do rely on a password somewhere the password alone is not enough and that seems like an awfully tiny inconvenience to you compared to the extra difficulty it puts in place for the crooks they can't simply do what mr glib did and get these password hashes that they acquired from wherever throw them at a botnet and just wait until they'd been cracked all right and then we have a couple pieces of never advice never reuse passwords and never ignore malware even on computers you don't care about yourself yes the reuse passwords it's obvious why because that means that in a case like this where maybe mr glib thinks he's cracked your work password but actually it was your netflix password hash if you've used the same password on your work account and your email account and your cryptocurrency wallet then the chain is only as strong as the weakest link so don't do that so that's the never about passwords the never ignore malware that's a rather different side to the story and that is talking about what happens if you realize that there are crooks on your computer maybe not on your network maybe it's just some laptop that you use for casual browsing at home and I have met people who go, oh, yeah, there might be malware on there. I, I don't bother with an antivirus. I don't bother with a firewall. I don't bother taking this too seriously. I, I kind of don't really care because the crooks can steal every file on there. I don't leave anything personal. And meh, that is a very poor attitude because this is an excellent example of why if you have malware on your computer, the crooks don't necessarily use that malware against you. Mr. Glib didn't have his botnet so that he could go and spy on everyone in his botnet he had his botnet so he could use your computer to help him help other people break into networks of people you'd never even heard of so do not be part of the problem please be part of the solution all right that is he sold cracked passwords for a living now he's serving four years in prison <laughs> i thought you were going to do a nursery yeah, right she there. sold no. seashells by the seashore all right, up next, we've got a out-of-band Firefox update to 100.0.1, but it's not quite an emergency, it doesn't sound like, Paul. No, I thought, okay, in many months there's a dot .1, and not infrequently you'll get a dot .2. So between Firefox's scheduled four weekly updates, you'll often get a dot .1 or a dot .2, and usually it's either there's a feature that just turned out to be broken, you know, like some web pages are coming up with black screen with particular graphics cards, and there's an obvious fix. Why not just shove it out? And the other reason, which is much more concerning and why I wanted to look at this, is, of course, what if it's an O-Day? 
that's what got me interested because I noticed that the Linux distro I use, which is Slackware, that came up. So oh, we've got Firefox 100.0.1 was available sometime at the end of last week. And yet when I went to the Firefox.com site, there was no sign of that release. I mean, that's not unusual, but there was no sign the next day. Or And then on Sunday, I went there, still no sign of it. The release notes, oh, we'll publish them when we're ready. But yet you could go to the Mozilla FTP server and find your way to the Firefox version and download it. I thought, well, that seems weird. Like if, if it's that important, why have they put it out and then not released it? And when you look at some of the changes, the one that sprung to mind, and I, I was pointed in this direction by the popular German site ghacks.com, who'd noticed this. If you look at the, you know, the bug fixes that happened between 100.0 and 100.0.1, there was something in there about, hey, we're going to turn on this special extra Windows sandbox security feature that hardens all the separate rendering processes that we do that decide what content appears in each tab. Because as you know, what if there's a bug in parsing images? What if there's a bug in handling complicated HTML or CSS or JavaScript or whatever? This sand Windows sandbox thing, which is based on some Windows system functions that Microsoft, in their infinite wisdom, has put inside the kernel for performance reasons many, many, <laughs> many years ago, like what could possibly go wrong? This feature's been brewing for months, if not years, and they've been working on it and dealing with all the weird cases where, oh, we've locked the, down the rendering process too far, etc. Why do a point release just for that? Why not just wait till Firefox 101.0 and then do a big announcement? Hey, this hardening feature we've been testing, it's going live next month. Whoopee. Then <laughs> I noticed in the, the latest release meeting, there was also a note that said, Hey, everybody, next week is the Pwn to Own competition in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how convenient. So they're getting ready for that. And I couldn't help but wonder, are they just thinking, and good on them if they are, you know what, wouldn't it be an awful irony if we were so close? Just the day before 100.0.1 came out, uh, the Mozilla team published on their Mozilla Hacks blog an excellent little paper entitled Improved Process Isolation in Firefox 100. And it describes some of the complexities in implementing this thing that they call Win32K Lockdown. It's called Win32K because that's short for Win32 API calls that actually happen right inside kernel land, which is kind of a shortcut for a user process to get some of its code and, more importantly, some of its untrusted user-supplied data crunched in the kernel, which controls the whole system instead of getting crunched in a user land process where the kernel can shut it down if something goes wrong. All right, that'll be exciting to watch. That is Firefox out of band update to 100.0.1, just in time for Pwn to Own on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it's time for our This Week in Tech History segment. Well, we talked about Perfect Threes earlier in the show. And this week... On May 19th, 1980, the Apple III was announced. Ah, Doug, <laughs> now, I, now I get it. The, an imperfect three, right? Well, yeah, well, <laughs> yes. Uh, it would ship, it was announced it in... it wasn't that good, was yeah, it? No, no, no. It was, it was announced in May. 
<laughs> it shipped in November, at which point the first 14,000 Apple Threes off the line were recalled. The machine would be reintroduced again Ooh, in November of 1981. Oh, uh, so it then took them a whole year. Yeah, it was a flop. Apple's co-founder Steve Wozniak attributed the machine's failure to it being designed by marketing people instead of engineers. And uh, as a marketing person, <laughs> I can tell you we should not be designing products. <laughs> if you want our input, we're happy yeah. to give it, but uh, we should not be. The, the engineer should be doing the designing. Yeah. Apparently, I think it was the Apple III, wasn't it, that when they did start shipping, they would often fail after a short while. And apparently someone figured out entirely by chance. I, I think I've read a story that it, it was some Apple employee got so annoyed when his own Apple III wasn't working that he basically smashed it down on his desk and it started working. I think it was something like that when you first started using it, if the, some of the chips hadn't been seated properly, the, the heat inside the case would cause them to creep upwards and they'd lose contact. When people reported this, they were told to lift the computer a few centimeters off their desk and let it crash back, <laughs> thus using inertia to jam the chips home. I have no idea whether that's an apocryphal story, but I've heard it several times. The 1980s equivalent of have you tried rebooting? So, yeah. From, have you tried thwacking it with a hammer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From what I from what I read, I think this was the beginning of Steve Jobs' fascination with fanless computing. And uh, I remember as a tech at a at CompUSA in the early 2000s, those uh, Mac cubes that rolled off the line that were fanless, we were fixing those all the time because they just kept overheating. So this was actually an issue that started back with the Apple III. The imperfect three. In comparison, the Apple Newton was a resounding success. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Say. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, let's uh, let's stick on the subject of Apple. There was a zero-day kernel hole that was patched. There was some bonus Mac-only bugs and something uh, that I just learned about called a code smell, which I'm intrigued to hear more about. Oh, let's leave that for a bit later. Um, at First glance, because I, I always go to the, the current versions of stuff. So I went to Monterey and iOS 15.5, and there were loads of troubling bugs, kernel-level remote code execution holes that if someone could figure out them out non-responsibly and exploit them, you imagine now when you've got kernel holes, we've said this on the podcast a lot before, that's a bit of a goldmine for people like jailbreakers producers of commercial spyware and snoopy surveillance stuff and cyber criminals because it basically means you can implant code that isn't just a rogue app it actually affects the kernel which is the kind of meta app that controls all the other apps but i search for the apple's magic word report which you find in the string we have received reports that this has been seen in the wild nothing so I thought, okay, that's good news. And then I went through the bulletins one by one. And to my surprise, what you might call the middle platform, so Big Sur, which is the, la the previous Mac OS, and interestingly, I think tvOS, which has the 15.5 version of iOS, but isn't exactly the same as it, as it. They both had a bug called CVE-2022-22675, if you want to search for it that could not only deliver kernel-level remote code execution, but was 
being exploited in the wild. So, like I said, that sort of smells like jailbreaking, heavy cybercriminality, spyware, surveillance tools. But then you go back one further, you go back to Catalina, and that doesn't have this bug in it. Monterey doesn't have the zero day. Big Sur does. Catalina doesn't. So you imagine that somehow in those three versions, Big Sur just got unlucky. And this does happen in, in when you've got three different versions supported at the same time. It made for what I thought was an intriguing mystery. This zero-day kernel-level remote code execution hole, but it's only in some of the products, and you need to take account what they are. The ones that have it are, that have the zero-day watchOS, which now goes to 8.6, tvOS, if you've got an Apple TV, which goes to 15.5, and macOS Big Sur, which goes to 11.6.6. If you've got the latest macOS, then it doesn't have the zero day. And if you've got the older macOS, Catalina doesn't have it either. Maybe not everyone finds that as entertaining, as important, and as intriguing as I do, but it is a good reminder of how complicated looking after multiple versions of big software packages can be. Uh, that is fascinating. I'm sure it's great. But could you get to the part about the code smell, please? Well, that's, I guess, a little bit of programmer jargon. It's a term that's often used to refer to something that you see in, say, a, a file of code or a particular programming module or probably shouldn't say this, but perhaps maybe repeatedly in some particular programmer's work where you think, my golly, if that were food, I probably wouldn't eat it because it doesn't look as though <laughs> it's been cooked. In It might be fine, but I wouldn't have left it out on the shelf for three hours <laughs> afterwards. This code smell was not apples, although, of course, they inherited it. I was referring to a bug that I think we spoke about on the podcast a couple of months ago when it came out. It was a bug in OpenSSL that meant that when you visited a website, it could feed you a booby-trapped digital certificate that it wouldn't take over your computer, but it would put the process that you were that was handling your request into an infinite loop. So, for example, if you were running a web server and someone came along with their browser, every time they tried to revisit, you could freeze that tab and the next one they tried and the next one they tried because somebody wrote a loop, which was supposed to be a obviously a finite length loop. It stopped if it had been going for too long. It said, I can't find the result. I'll give up. But they wrote it in a terribly bad way. Say you want to loop through from one to ten. Don't go and then when the loop variable is exactly 10 exit. Why not code the loop to say we are going to run the loop while this variable is less than or equal to 10? And that kind of thing is what I'm referring to as a code smell. You look at it and you go, ooh, that really needs rewriting. And if you remember that bug, it was CVE-2022-0778 in OpenSSL. It was one of those things that was way down in some code that you'd think, well, it, that's very, very complicated. It was to do with modular square roots, if I remember correctly. It was a bit of complicated arithmetical stuff. And you think, well, that must have been tested a million times. The code smells so bad, I'm not going to go in there. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming uh, it works. I'm glad I asked about it. 
Well, that is Apple Patch's zero-day kernel hole and much more update now on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And as the sun begins to set on our show for today, it's time to hear from one of our readers, and I use the term reader loosely. As you know, this segment used to be called Oh No. This is kind of an oh no of a comment. This reader writes in, Hey, I enjoyed this blog where you talk about the growth of freelance full-stack developers. I can't even remember what article it was now. It was spam where they go, oh, I really love your work, where you talk about... It was a comment on a podcast episode, too, yeah. Oh, was it? It wasn't even (laughs) even an article. Well, there you go. I guess this person has never read that famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he just launches into... uh, One of the great freelancing platforms for freelance developers is, and then puts a link that we don't want to show anyone, take a look at the freelancing platform, too. It is a new yet great platform for technical experts. All that from just listening to the podcast. It's it's sort of like finding someone, you know, like me, who doesn't like cars and is deeply committed to cycling and loves it and loves building their own bicycles and whatnot, and then can't say, oh, duck! I'm so delighted that you have such a deep and abiding interest in hot air ballooning. Would you like to go on a trip? What planet are you on? I mean, we get a lot of nonsense like that in naked security comments. I don't know what it was about that one. So basically, (laughs) click here for the most rubbish programmers you've ever seen in your whole life. That won't be a code smell. That will be a blanketing stench of doom. What a way to wrap up the podcast. Yeah, that's as good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I will say thank you to this person for sending this in. And if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles. You can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath, reminding you until next time to stay Stay secure. secure. Doug. Doug, tell me I didn't get trolled. Uh, I don't know. He had a Gmail address. He, yeah, it's, it looked like a regular <laughs> guy. <so. laughs> yeah. uh.